Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host for today, Inmit Narwin, and I use they, them pronouns. Today we're talking about something that we sort of reference all the time on the show, and that is death, a thing that we should all live like is going to happen someday, because it is. I wanted to have Wone and Roxy on to talk about this because I found myself thinking about it more and more as things change ever more rapidly in our world. And I think it's cool to talk about because it's just another form of community preparedness that we can all engage in to make our end of lives easier for ourselves and for the people that we care about. And in general, to to just demystify the topic as we figure out how to leave this world, whether that pertains to navigating funerary industries, medical industries, legal logistics, medical interventions, the choice to die at home, how to have home burials, how to care for the dying, and how to have these conversations as a community. A content warning, obviously we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff, and we approach it with some amount of levity, but we do talk at some point about the idea of choosing to die uh, from the perspective of terminal illness. But before we get into it, we are a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on that network. Do, 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 do. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. Coffee with Comrades is rooted in militant joy. Our hope is to cultivate a warm and inviting atmosphere, like walking into your favorite coffee shop to sit down with some of your close friends and share a heart-to-heart conversation. New episodes premiere every Tuesday, so be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast so that you never miss an episode. We are proud to be a part of the Channel Zero Network. And we're back. Uh, thanks, y'all, so much for coming on the show with us today, um, especially to talk about a subject that I feel like is like a little bit more grim than we usually talk about. Or I guess we kind of always we always talk about it, but we never actually talk about it. Um, hmm. So, uh, yeah, would you like to introduce yourselves with your names, pronouns, and kind of like what? you do in the world yeah um my name is one i use he him pronouns uh i work in grave care so burial and uh generally any rot honoring <laughs> uh practice uh that i can help with and my name is Roxanne. I am a nurse and have been doing um, kind of like end of life and death doula sort of work outside of that for maybe 15 years or so. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, and y'all are part of a collective that kind of like specializes in this kind of work. Um, would y'all want to introduce that? 
now or we could talk about it later. Yeah, no, we can introduce it now. Um, our collective is called Woven Ends. Um, we're more recently becoming more outward facing. Uh, we're a collection of uh, death care practitioners and community members who are interested in uh, helping the community. Uh, we are focused on combating uh, the domination and alienation in our world through making our death rates and the care for the dying like uh, more autonomous and a lot more intimate and accessible and accessible yeah. yeah cool um yeah it's it's weird how much the state is like intertwined in death and that's like not I feel like that's not something I ever realized until I realized it. And then I was like, Oh, like, can you like, can you die without the state being involved? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Like the, the bureaucratic storm, uh, is also guided by the industry and a lot of the, the rituals that we have now and the way that death operates is yeah it's a contrived effort of the funeral industry too um with dealing with all aspects after death so it's it's a really yeah troubling difficult thing um yeah families and loved ones navigating the whole process often yeah 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 it's pretty devastating it's like capital will take hold and commodify any and every aspect of our life possible and not even our life but our afterlife as well mm. like yeah it's hard to believe in true freedom sometimes but that's why we're here fighting for it <laughs> yeah i feel like um whatever i'm gonna take like a pretty like uh light-hearted and like whimsical uh tone today because we're talking about something grim but I feel like we have these like ideas that like, you know, the state's got me in life, but at least when I die, I'll be free. And it's like, maybe, I mean, your body won't be. Um, but yeah. Um, all kind of yeah, sadly, no, <laughs> eventually yes, but initially no. Uh, yeah, I feel like that is a literal nightmare of mine. Um, um, could y'all kind of break down like what what is death work? Like, what is what is a death doula? Like, what are like what is the woven ends collective kind of like do in like a material or emotional way? Yeah. Um. Well, I can speak towards death doula work. Um, what a death doula is, is a little undefined. And there are powers that be that are trying to make it more defined and kind of like more commodified. But basically, a death doula is someone who 
helps a family or a loved one sort of like go through the process. So that could look like before someone dies, helping come up with some like legacy projects, some things that people um, want to leave behind or how someone wants to be remembered. So that could be like, um, you know, if a 40 year old who has three kids dies, a kind of legacy work you could do with someone in that situation is like, you know, help them record videos um, for their kids' future birthdays, you know, stuff like that. So that way when their kids get older, like hit those milestones, they can have this video from their parent that has been gone for a while. So yeah, just kind of like, you know, one aspect is focusing on legacy work. Another aspect is just kind of like emotionally helping people with the grieving process, um, whether that be the person who's actually passing away or the family sort of like, talking through the process of all of that with them and then you know other aspects could be like more um uh helping set up funerary services um trying to help work on community aspects of disposition um yeah uh death duel is it's sort of the individual does different things and i think if someone's interested in having a death doula, I would really ask questions about what specific services they provide. Yeah, and I can speak more to like our collective. We definitely, we try to connect like the right people um, to help different community members. So that could be a death doula or a, even a grave digger. Um, so a lot of what we do is uh, like guidance around the whole process and uh, we definitely want to like expand our scope completely um, to be able to care for the whole process. But most of what we've been doing in the past and currently uh, is helping folks with uh, finding burial um, options that are accessible and hopefully free. And we've been able to create a network of free home burial grounds where we live. Um, and it's been really awesome uh, to be able to provide to, to provide this for free. Um, and it usually is in tandem with a lot more care going on with death doulas and um, generally like yeah, the radial support that happens when you're trying to create a more autonomous uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah. I would also say that, like, a part of the sort of, like, intentional death work thing is to, like, <clears throat> really help communities and individuals um, kind of, like, shift narratives towards death. We live in a really death phobic society and is a thing that I think, you know, like even in our introduction, we're like, okay, okay, this is a really grim topic, but it's interesting because it's one of, you know, aside from being alive, it's the only other thing that everything is going to experience. It's like the one thing that even if you have nothing in common with somebody else, 
the fact that you're going to die is like, is a thing that you have in common. And so I feel like there's a lot of room for connection there. And a part of this sort of work is to try to like, you know, find connection, find community and sort of shift the narrative around this very like natural and inevitable thing that's going to happen and open up room and space for there to be like beauty and transition in that instead of just fear. Cause I think oftentimes people don't actually, they're not scared to die. They're scared of being in pain and those are <laughs> very different things. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, just like death workers offer a space for us to really intentionally look at that and say like, okay, you're feeling scared. What is it that you're scared of? You know, and really helping shift that narrative and also hopefully providing a space where nobody has to die alone. Um, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes that's just going to happen, but if at all possible, making sure that we can provide space unless someone wants to, but they, but they don't have to die alone. Yeah. 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 We do live in a really death phobic society and um, I, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's a sad and hard and difficult thing, but I feel like I have always wished that, um, there, that we, as like a culture, like did have like different, like attitudes or different, like how we deal with like, or grieve or like mourn or whatever. I don't know. I've just, I've had like a couple, like kind of like funny, like funerary experiences where I was like, are we like, are, are we celebrating this person's life or are we like mad at them because they didn't tell anyone how sick they were like, and that just mm -hmm. like, yeah, just like a lot of like funny experiences like that, where I was like, like, I wish that we were, I wish we had a, that, the, that we had a different attitude towards this right now. Cause I'm not, like, not sure if this attitude is like helping anyone. Yeah, definitely. And I think you bring up a good point too, where, be because of death phobia, but also because of our obsession with uh, what we consider health. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people are so scared to admit that they're sick because there's so little support <laughs> and resource around, around that. And people don't want to be, you know, or burden to each other. And instead of being, angry at our friends because they d wouldn't tell us how sick they are it's a great time to you know take a moment and be like okay why do we live in a world in which someone that i loved very much could not tell me how sick they were and like how do i fight that world instead of my friend yeah yeah totally you you mentioned earlier i just want to like hit on this before we get too far away from it but um some people there being some effort to make being a death doula more of a defined thing. Um, and I'm, I know this is subjective, but like, is that, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that a complicated thing? I mean, in my personal opinion, I'm not for that. I feel like the way 
like I understand and respect people wanting to figure out how to do this work um, and still like it, it makes sense to me that people want to do this work in a permanent way and in this world that we live in this society of capitalism like people need to get paid for their time to, in order to survive like that makes sense to me um but i think that there can be a kind of um predatory nature to it um and these you know it's like the commodification of the the like death dying death doula world is really similar to what happened in the birth community and i think that's kind of interesting that the link between the two because people have been dueling each other since people were <laughs> were born <laughs> about how to do these things and if we lived in communities where we were interacting with birth and death in more tangible ways then we wouldn't need sort of outsiders to tell us how to um how to do these things um but yeah i i think that the certification process um doesn't make sense i think it's just another platform um of like kind of like institutionalization and commodification that um uh that isn't necessary you know it's like okay um they you know a lot of these uh certification organizations are offering education which amazing, yes, like education is so important, but the, the real education, and I feel like I learned this in nursing school too, like you can learn all the ins and outs of things, but where you're actually going to learn is, is through experience. So like, you wanna learn how to be a death doula, go volunteer for hospice, like go watch people die and you will learn so much just from having that experience or like, you know, and, and not just hospice, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways that people can sit with people at the end of their life. But, you know, like you don't need to pay someone to teach you how to be an active listener. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I think, uh, like in, in the realm that I work in, the, which is what they call green or natural burial, like it's all that same pattern of like pushing towards professionalization and specialization and being co-opted into like the capitalist system even though a lot of these cemeteries that are providing um this like really beautiful practice uh they didn't intend on that and they stuck to themselves in, as a non-profit they just said like continued to fall into the trappings of what happens when you uh professionalize something and just now there's like overarching regulatory uh institutions and like it's just it makes it really hard to uh get into the process and uh start a cemetery and yeah and it and they're walking hand in hand with the rest of the funeral industry uh to like annually increasing prices um for these rituals that were supposed to be, uh, yeah, supposed to be a lot more accessible and ecological, um, but they're not. But they're not accessible. Yeah. 
Totally. And I feel like this, yeah, this focus on specialization really, you know, negates and alienates the fact that we have inherent wisdom as to how to handle these situations. And then when we can't accept or like don't have, um, uh, courage isn't the word that I'm looking for, uh, confidence in our own, um, you know, kind of inherent wisdom, then we, yeah, then we feel like we need a specialist to tell us what to do, but it's all right there inside of us and, and in, you know, information that we can pass down with each other through, you know, actually having a relationship with death and dying and disposition and, and all the things. So I feel like, yeah, the more we can be um, connected and like, uh with death honestly yeah the the better we can be with life also Mm. yeah when we say when we say disposition we mean burial cremation uh you know being eaten by birds everything so yeah 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 i feel like (laughs) It's it's fun to use this as the thing to compare it to, but um, you know, I, I I think it's important for us to like have, you know, guides through like hard times or like people to people who are like very familiar with or like versed in, um, like leading these experiences or facilitating these experiences, and um, it's. <laughs> like what you were just describing and like kind of like the, the the death industry is it reminds me of like a boutique like coffee shop or something um yeah like turning turning death and ritual into like a boutique coffee experience um that is just another strange industry that maybe people feel better about but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much actual like connection or like community building that is that is doing. Totally. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And is yeah, it's a similar thing. Yeah. And again, they did that with the with the birthing community too. It's yeah, it's yeah. sad. And like, you know, uh with like organic foods. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same shit. Yeah. Um, to kind of, to kind of switch gears a little bit, um, why is it important to think about this stuff now? Like, why is it important to think about dying? Why should we be having these conversations as a community? Mm. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's always been important, uh, when you want a culture that renews itself. Um, And especially now when we're facing intense upheaval, uh, it's a, yeah, developing like a deeper intimacy with death. Like it helps us like claim a place and claim ancestors. develop a deeper resilience to yeah to the chaos in the world you know and 
like when thinking about movements and how like under the regime of alienation like and the lack of like intergenerational connection and especially like connection to our ancestors like things can really be thwarted you know um without those connections to place or to the people that came before yeah and so like being able to be with like the yeah the unexplainable and uh unknowable aspect uh of life i think now as Juan was just saying is so important because we are living in pretty devastating times it's it's pretty obvious i think to most people with um with what's going on with the climate you know ecological destruction um getting worse like very viscerally year by year um and not just in one place but all across the world where people are really you know uh you live in Arizona. Wait, maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, I've said I've said it uh, okay. on the air well, multiple okay. times. <laughs> yeah. Well, for example, you live in a place that this summer, if someone accidentally tripped and fell, they would burn themselves on the ground and potentially have to go to the burn ICU. Like that wasn't true five years ago, and it's just only going to be coming more true more places across the world. And I think, yeah, just really um, taking inventory of the trajectory that the world is, is on right now um, means that we, yeah, we're, when you're living on a dying planet, <laughs> you're going to have to deal with the fact that we are a part of that planet and and not separate from that um and i think also you know the question of why now is like both a societal question and also kind of like an individual question because i think you know i am 39 years old i think um most people in their 20s 30s 40s even 50s aren't really thinking and hopefully you know yeah people even younger than that obviously need to be thinking about this stuff too. But I think that, you know, um, often the like more like normative stance, which is also partially ableist is just to be like, Oh, you know, if, if I have a fine bill of health, then why should I be concerned about these things? And we all know people die unexpectedly. We all know our relationship to, to health in all the different forms that that can look like can change at any moment. We all know that life isn't just in inevitable. And so I think, think really thinking, really thinking about these things and really starting to prepare for these things is, is one of the, the best things we can do to help not just, you know, those around us when we die, but also to help inform how we live our lives. Yeah. So no matter what age you are, I think it's important to be thinking about 
and talking about, I've been having conversations, for example, with my mom about the fact that she was going to die since I was like five years old. And then at some point I was like, oh, wait, if you're dying, that means I'm dying too. <laughs> We're going to have to think about this. Yeah. What does, and you know, this is the fun uh, moment where we get to say the name of the podcast in a question, but um, how does one live like they're dying? Like, what does that mean? I mean, I think it's understanding that ecologically and spiritually, like the dead make the world. Yeah. Like, our ancestors are not just like our blood and that came before us. It's everything we eat and breathe. And yeah, even conceive of, you know, and dream of. So it's fully like opening our minds to like, yeah, understanding this deep cycle of life. Yeah. And, you know, some intentionality recognizing that the things that we do and how we treat ourselves and each other do matter, you know, like they do matter because we are people experiencing each other. They don't matter in the way that we are tiny pieces of sand floating around on this huge rock in this ginormous atmosphere. You know, it's like, it's both, both things are happening at the same time. We are a multitude. It turns out <laughs> both how we are and who we are matter and also don't at all um but i think yeah just like really honoring uh the fact that uh that it's it's a limited resource that life is is actually a limited resource and um yeah and the time that we spend together is is also limited and yeah, trying to um, to really love people while you can, to be brave enough to really love the people in your life while you can. Yeah, I feel like we have such a, our culture has such a focus on like the concept of later and the future that like, yeah. Um, and you know, this, this is maybe obvious because our society, like a lot of the society that we live in is, founded on this idea of or like founded by people who are informed by a religion that embraces a an afterlife that and um something i've really appreciated about like i'm and i'm i'm not necessarily an atheist but like something i've always appreciated about atheism is that it is like weirdly pro-life and pro-living in this way where it's like yeah there's nothing after this so you gotta do what you want to do now not later um yeah and I mean, yeah so i was gonna add, i mean i think that like christian yeah the christian worldview is inherently like disassociating from your body um yeah so it's not a good place to start <laughs> yeah just to to switch gears a little bit um i want to talk a little bit more about like kind of the, the logistics of death um 
So something something that I think about a lot is like if you know if I get sick tomorrow, if I get in an accident tomorrow, and like my condition suddenly changes like rapidly, um, and I have feelings about how I want like what interventions I want taken or um, how I want. Let, let's start with interventions and then we'll move on to, to other, to other bits. But like, how, how do I prepare for that? How do I prepare for getting the, having my, the interventions that I want taken or not taken? Or how do I get to choose who gets to make those decisions when I'm no longer able to? So the, the simplest answer to that would be to um, complete an advanced directive uh, that's legally binding. And so this designates the person who will be your advocate legally um, to make choices at the end of life and after death. Um, yeah, and this ends up... Uh, this yeah supersedes the the legal next of kin, which uh, without designating uh, the power of attorney, will be your biological family. And so this is really important if you don't want them to be in charge of uh, what you want to happen to you at the end of life or after your death. So um, yeah, cool. Um. Do you have something to add to that, Roxy? I do. Cool, cool. <laughs> uh, I think that I just wanted to add that um, that making choices around um, around your healthcare power attorney, like who that person should or could be. Um, I think sometimes there can be a lot of pressure from people that are close to you that um, that just because you're close with someone that they should be the one to help make those medical decisions for you. But I would like to argue that maybe that's not always the best person. Um, what you want in these situations is someone who can who will follow the directive that you lay out um, because um, uh, just because you have this document stating how you would like for things to go at the end of the day, the healthcare power of attorney actually gets to make the final call. So maybe you say, you know, um, CPR is okay, but I don't want to be intubated at the end of the day. If your healthcare power of attorney decides I want them to be intubated, despite what your paperwork says, they can intubate you. Mm -hmm. um, so you really want to pick someone who can, who you think will follow what you've asked for. And also someone who, even if they don't have the information themselves, will educate themselves or ask the right questions to make decisions that they think you will want. And it's also, I think, good to think about, you know, if, for example, you think your partner is going to be so 
worried and like so in a process of grief that maybe maybe they're not the one to choose because Mm -hmm. maybe it's better for them to just to get to be in the grief process um and not having to make these big decisions um I've seen so many times in the hospital where the family feels like if they choose to quote unquote pull the plug like that they are the ones that killed their loved one, not whatever, you know, situation their their person was in, or like just that the bodies can only handle so much. And I think that, yeah, giving someone healthcare power of attorney is, um, uh, I'm not going to say it's a burden, but there there is definitely potential for, um, for weight, you know, uh, behind that and um and is is a serious question it's not um it's not a popularity contest it's not about who you like the most it's about who you really think can help um make the decisions when they need to be made or who's going to be brave enough to to call it when it needs to be called yeah yeah that makes sense yeah yeah i think that's just kind of it reveals like the the need for you know models of like anarchist mutual aid that like we we all support each other you know it's like uh being able to have these conversations and uh support each other like outside of these really normative like pathways of the nuclear family and um yeah breaking that prescription and i guess i just wanted to add that for sure if you want to make sure as as close as possible as if you wanted to make sure as much as what's in your capability that your wishes are going to be met with interventions having an advanced directive is the only real way to do that legally Mm. so if you don't feel like as Mom was saying earlier, if you don't feel like you fully trust your family to do the things that you would want to do, you have to have that written down. You have to have it notarized. You really have to go through that process. It's really important. Yeah. And then it seems like kind of equally as important is having those conversations with your community and with like whoever you're designating as your power of attorney so that like yeah, I don't know. it's like I'm imagining like in this situation that you've built where like your partner might not be the best person. Um, so you like make this advanced directive and you designate someone who's maybe not your partner as the power of attorney. Um, and then you it seems like you have to then like have conversations with that person or with your community like as a whole um, about like what you want. And then like I'm imagining the situation where like you do that and then it's like so it's like not entirely falling on one person maybe one person has to like legally make those decisions but like other people can like support them or like it can be a little like network of support that like kind of helps hold people to like what your like best wishes were does that kind of make sense definitely absolutely and it's like the an advanced directive is not all-encompassing um like being able to guide the types of rituals you want and 
yeah, like every little detail that you want, you should be able to have, but you have to have those conversations and have to be ongoing um, with as many of your loved ones as possible. So the advanced directive is a kind of a way to safeguard against, uh, yeah, the powers that be from taking control of your life and your death. So, but it, it, it lacks like a lot of other guidance that relies on like being able to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so this, this is something I was kind of thinking about with this is like, um, if, so like, say, you know, maybe that not necessarily that like in this hypothetical, like I don't have like the best relationship with my parents or as I say, I have a fine relationship with my parents who are still alive and, but I don't think that they would make the best decisions. So I designate uh, someone from, you know, my like chosen family network to be my power of attorney. Um, but then, you know, I get sick, I get into an accident and suddenly my fam my biological family and my chosen family are in the same room. Um, is there, I imagine those situations can get pretty contentious, like for, especially for like my biological family to find out that they do not have the power of attorney. Um, like are, I guess obviously you should maybe like have those conversations with your family, but like I, you know, I would rather, I would rather not have that conversation with my family where I'm like, hi, I have uh, taken away your medical power of attorney over me. Um, but I also don't want to like necessarily entirely pass that off to my friends to deal with. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Have you like seen kind of like situations like that where that were contentious went well or like do you have any tips for navigating that well i mean in different forms i've seen it uh i think it's yeah important to say like once you have your uh power of attorney designated the family does no longer have like they don't have control the power of attorney does and so like in a situation like you were describing, I think the idea of like communal care comes in where you can have like maybe the person who is your health care advocate um, isn't necessarily the one who is like negotiating with the family or mediating. Um, just having more people involved to take care of the situation, I think is uh, the best advice I could give. Yeah, I would say, you know, I always push towards uh, tending towards collaboration, you know, when possible. So if someone's family is just absolutely unwilling to work with, you know, the chosen family or the person as part of attorney, then honestly, that situation actually just hurts them more. So I think as much as, you know, as people can collaborate, the better. Um, 
and recognizing and appreciating the fact that everyone in a situation is going through some kind of fear and grief. And we don't always behave our best in those situations. So trying to be generous with each other um, and give each other time and space to, you know, I'm not saying you have to deal with someone using abusive language towards you or, you know, anything like that, but just, you know, recognizing that, that this can be a real space of grief and collaboration might not seem possible at first. And then it is, I've had situations where collaboration seemed really possible. And then the friends, family member flipped out and tried to get us all kicked out of the hospital. This is before I was a nurse and was just a really kind of traumatic situation for everyone, but ended up like, this is actually that situation is what really got me on the tip of like, Oh, we have to have advanced directives. This is like imperative. Um, But yeah, I think, yeah, as I, as I already said, as, as much as people can work with each other and collaborate, even if you've been told stories throughout your whole friendship with someone about, you know, what a monster their parent is or whatever, just like, focus on the task at hand, which is helping your friend get safe and accessible and, um, and good care for as long as they can. And if you need the family to be a part of that, great. And if the family has to go, cause sometimes the family's got to go, you get to, you get to make that call and it's like, they got to go, they got to go, but hopefully that won't be the case. I think it's just as, like from a harm reductionist standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Does a family have any legal recourse against a power of attorney? Like I just, I like, I could imagine like a family believing that they have some kind of legal recourse, but like, like, could they sue people? Could they like challenge it? I mean, I, I'm going to say no. I know that that, it happens like a lot of legal challenges happen but in the moment i think like is what should guide you and like healthcare and funeral services will honor the the power the health power of attorney um so yeah i think that that is a risk in a, in a really uh contentious situation but it is not likely that the healthcare system or the funeral uh funeral professionals will dishonor uh the advanced directive and it might be a situation like in a hospital sort of setting it might be a thing where they kind of set up like a mediation with like an ethics board sort of thing um mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the legal document is the legal document. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm imagining that the answer to this is along a similar lines, but like in the reverse situation, if like, if I don't have a power of attorney designated or an advanced directive, but I have, you know, my friends that I've had these conversations with at least, or I have like, a journal entry or something about this. I'm guessing that doesn't have like at the end of the day, it's the the family 
or the next of kin, whoever has been like legally designated has all of that power to make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And again, that's where like a united community who can, you know, help, you know, maybe approach the family and be able to, yeah, negotiate or collaborate. Uh, yeah. That would be the right place to start. But also, like, if that's not possible, knowing that you can, yeah, still hold space for your grief as a community, even if you're separated from the actual process of dying and death. And you can enact, like, yeah, the depth of meaning that you need um, and connection with each other if that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, to kind of switch gears a little bit, um, this is a weird question. God, how much does it cost to die? Like, obviously, maybe it. You know, if you're if you do die, then like that expense is not going to be your responsibility. But um. I'm like imagining this situation like from I don't know if y'all have seen that movie Little Miss Sunshine but like mm -hmm. the the grandpa like dies and they're like it'll cost this much money to like get the body and they're like we don't have that so they like steal the body. Um yeah how how much does it cost to die and get uh have your remains something or anothered. I don't know what they're I don't know what a good word is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I can definitely speak to after death. I think the the national average has risen, but I think a few years ago it was around eight thousand dollars, like to do a really normative funeral service, like burial. Um, more and more people are choosing cremation because it has. It is cheaper, even though it is getting more expensive. And I think the average cremation cost is anywhere from like one to three thousand, based on what type of package you buy from the funeral home. It's there's a lot of ways that funeral homes can be predatory. Not all funeral homes are predatory, but uh, the vast majority are. And every year gets more expensive. Um, so yeah, it's. It just depends on your form of disposition. So like if you're doing cremation, it's going to be a lot cheaper. Um, but often people choose that because it's cheaper, not because of thoughts of like, if that's exactly what they wanted, you know, they're thinking about the financial situation of the family and, um, yeah, and it shouldn't be that way. They should have the type of ritual and just disposition that they want. Um, yeah, it's a pretty horrifying situation. Um, yeah. Yeah. And wh like, what happens to, like, if I like, I don't, I like, you know, normally when you go to the hospital, there's a bill, but like, if you die, like, who has to pay for the care that you received? Yeah, your your family um, will get that debt. Um, as far as I understand, they're yeah next of kin kind of kind of situation mm -hmm. 
so when I think about like my own wishes around like my remains, um, like, you know, one of those fantasies or ideas is like that I would love to, you know, not be embalmed. I would love to not have my body rot in the ground. Is that possible? Absolutely. Um, To start, the only federal law around death is that you don't have to be embalmed. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a strange, actually good law. Um, it's kind of a response to like an exploding funeral industry. Uh, I think around, I think it was in, I don't exactly remember is, is, uh, decades ago. And so, uh, a lot of advocates like pushed for that to happen. Um, yeah, so you definitely don't have to be embalmed, even if you go to a funeral home and they say, like, this is the only way, they're lying. Um, but luckily that's happening less and less because natural burial or what they call green burial um, is getting a lot more popular. And it's, I think, I think in all states now and in this country you can find a place at least within like a hundred miles but i would advocate that if you have access to land in any way you should do a home burial and even if that means you have to go through some bureaucracy uh and like create an official cemetery uh you should do that because you've now created a, a burial ground that others can be buried at and and the type of way that you want to to honor rot to honor the ecosystem um yeah so definitely what you want is very possible cool um yeah can I, i'm sure it's complicated state by state but like can you, if you own land or, you know, someone that owns land, they can just like designate part of it as a cemetery and then like people can get buried there. Is that like, what is that process like? It, it really is county by county. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, yeah. County by county. Yeah. It's really, I would say where we, where I am in the Southeast, as a general statement, any rural area, it is widely practiced still and very easy to do home burial. Um, and as another general statement, you just, you can't do this within city limits. Um, and I think that for good reason, because it, you know, they're hubs of capitalism with land turning over and like from where we're sitting, even, you know, half a mile down the road, they're desecrating a, a black cemetery that <clears throat> they just unearthed that had been paved over at least twice. So it's, I think like, yeah. So being able to be outside of the city limits is yeah, the best option and most accessible. I, I know some States are more difficult and there's more like, uh, there's more red tape. I would say research, uh where you live yeah and really think about doing this for your community 
what a gift when we live in a time where land and space is becoming i mean has been and, and is becoming such a such an intense uh battlefield for resource it's just like a really really intense thing to have is is land and space right. so being able to provide that for people for free even just to put their body is such an incredible resource yeah i know there's i know there's a lot of kind of i've heard of some like wild ways to have your remains dealt with um that maybe just to add a little bit of fun levity to the situation um but uh I've heard you can get turned into diamonds now. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Get tur- turned into a bowling ball. You can get turned into a bowling ball? I feel yeah. like this is a plot to a movie from the 90s. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, you can do a lot with cremated remains. Yeah. Pretty cool. Mushroom suits. Uh-huh. I'm really mm. into the mushroom suit personally. Well, the mushroom pottery. soup. Yeah. What is the mushroom well, soup? What the mushroom soup? I would say, I, it is a little. I have. I have. There needs to be more research on this mushroom <laughs> soup. <laughs> but fungus is a late stage decomposer, and this mushroom soup is something you're supposed to be buried in. That's what they're proposing, but often initial decomposition is way too hot and and will eat up fungus and Mm. so it's a little bit not completely thought out um uh yeah so i wouldn't advocate for mushroom soup but i would uh yeah advocate for you know creating an aerobic environment to be buried in so you rock really well and mm-hmm. you don't have to worry. The fungus will be there. Mm-hmm. They will be there to eat up your bones and all your desiccated tissues. And, yeah. I'm picturing yeah. like ground lasagna, you yeah. know, where there's like dirt and worms and things. And then like a layer of mycelial uh, input. And <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That makes the world go around. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, and you can, like, on a similar vein, I've heard in, like, like Oregon, you can get composted. Yeah, I think now it's legal in eight states. It uh, started in Seattle. Um, they call it human composting or natural organic reduction is another term they use. But basically, they're accelerating the decomposition of your soft tissues. And I think it's a really awesome thing, especially for folks who don't have access to land. Mm. Because they, yeah, you become soil really fast. Um, and then I think a lot of them partner with the forest areas where they'll spread your soil. Um, yeah, I think it's awesome. And I really hope that they uh, make it accessible, you know, like the rest of the uh, green 
it's uh, it remains to be seen, but I hope that that happens. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for listening. This turned into a much longer episode than we thought it would, which is great that there's just so much to talk about um, around this topic. Um, so that's the end of part one. If you enjoyed the show, please go talk to your community about death and then tell us about it. Uh, and think about filing an advanced medical directive and a power of attorney. We will be back next week with the second half of this episode where me and Roxy will talk a lot more about what it means to be a death doula. Um, I know these topics can be hard and scary, but I think talking about them helps us to not worry about them as much and offers a lot of hope to our communal resilience. If you enjoyed the show, please go tell people about it. You can support this podcast by telling people about it. You can support it by talking about it on social media, rating and reviewing, or doing whatever the nameless algorithm calls for as much as I don't want that to be something that's true. You can also support us in a financial way by following us on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. Our Patreon helps pay for things like transcriptions or our lovely audio editor bursts, as well as going to support our publisher, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. We put out a few more podcasts, including my other podcast, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, a monthly podcast of anarchist literature, and the Anarcho Geek Power Hour, which is the podcast for people who love movies and hate cops. And we would like to shout out some of our patrons in particular. Thank you, Carson, Lord Harkin, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Hans, Oxalis, Janice and Odell, Paige, Allie, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and as always, Haas the Dog. Thanks y'all so much. We seriously couldn't do it without you. Um, I hope that everyone is doing as well as they can with everything that's happening, and we will see you next week for the second part of this episode.